Welcome back to Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. So this is our first, for lack of a better term, bonus episode because we went to Sundance over the last like week, yeah. 10 days or so. And by went, I went to your house and I sat in your recliner and we watched things online because COVID has changed the festival experience entirely. It was really, I mean, COVID's been terrible, but, and, and obviously missing festivals like Fantastic Fest being canceled was rough. And Sundance, I had my ticket and everything last year, sorry, not Sundance, but South by last year and I was ready to go and I had to a week off from work and then that was when COVID hit. So this is the first like festival I've done in any way, I think during COVID. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions to you because I did Chattanooga last year when they did online. And then I did some of Fantastic Fest because they did a free one through Alamo's on-demand platform. But this was the... Not to throw shade or like feel like I'm denigrating those fests at all, but this was the first one that actually felt like a festival. Like, here's a week... Here are the movies. Here are the time slots. You have to show up to certain screenings. The second ones were all on demand. And like, I don't know. It had a different vibe than the the first ones, which again, it's not an insult to them because they were the pioneers. They were the first ones to try and do this. It's just like Sundance and like Toronto already had one too. So calling Sundance like the first big or like name brand festival isn't exactly accurate. But it is the first one that, like, I don't know, fully embraced the digital platform in the COVID age that also integrated, like, talks and a virtual waiting room. They had meetups, too. I didn't do any of that shit. I just watched movies. No, and I I was really impressed. I think that, you know, all of us who are working from home during COVID are used to Zoom calls and Google Hangout calls and all the... the, uh, difficulties that come along with that of, of, you know, frozen screens and, and, sure. and buffering. But, you know, except for a couple issues, like their system was like on lock for Sundance. I mean, like the quality, it was pretty much flawless. Cause it I, was, I was expecting big, big issues. It was like, you know, you think about, you know, I think it was for the November when they were launching PlayStation five and like Walmart couldn't keep up with the bandwidth and their whole site crashed. Yeah. You think of like that, like, shit show and like Sundance it was surprisingly just like really smooth obviously like the the amount of server space I'm not a tech guy but you just know (laughs) how much you know shit they had to have going on to make that work well I was flashing back to this is going to be an odd comparison but it, it was in my head while we were basically queuing up the first movie of Sundance is you remember when Joe Bob Briggs tried to do the first 24 hour marathon was shutter the last drive in before yeah. he got the show and everything. And it just crashed and half his audience couldn't get in for like the first two movies and everything. I truly thought that was going to happen for Sundance just because again, no shade or like fault to them. It's just, this is new territory. This yeah. is people trying to pioneer and like they might look at the server space and think, Oh yeah, this is enough before they're actually like putting it into practice. But then it crashes because that's what happened to Shudder and Joe Bob is they went, oh man, we really don't have the bandwidth to pull this off because it, the audience is much bigger than we thought. Which is great, but... But yeah, <laughs> at the same time, it's like we're disappointing all these people. 
But Sundance had zero issues. Like we had one hiccup at the beginning. It was literally we Coda. Our best as Coda. Yeah. yeah. To where like, and even that was like for less than thirty seconds. To where it was like, oh, it's not loading. You're like, oh fuck. But then we got right in. Movie started. Good to go. And I mean, like, and we can get onto the movies, but just like for me, with you know, four K TV, with I was, uh, I was basically shooting my my Apple computer to my Apple TV. And you it know was what's like, crazy? I need to tell you something about that, but keep going. But, it, tell but you it was like, you saw some of the stuff we were watching. It was like 4K quality sometimes. It was like beautiful. Oh, it looked great. It looked like a Blu-ray almost. Yeah, gorgeous. But what, what were you going to say about that? Um, so it was the last day during the award winners that I realized that you could download a Sundance app to uh, no. Amazon TV. So I watched the last two of my official quote-unquote fest screenings via this app. And it just streamed directly through Amazon. Oh. And I went, fuck, man. Because, like, you, as you said, we were basically throwing it from, you know, your Apple. And then when we watched stuff in my house, uh, we were just hooking up Hardwired. my uh, uh, computer through, like, the, the uh, outlet port or whatever. And, like, I downloaded it and I literally called Carrie and was like, hey, so there was an app the whole time. So I got to watch two movies on it, which is cool. It's just one of those things of, I wish I knew this a week ago, which again, isn't any fault to Sundance because I went back and like looked at it and I was like, oh, yep, right there. It's in the guide. Just didn't pick up on it. They probably had one for Apple TV too, but they did. Oh, great. They did. It was, and it was one of those things like Plex or whatever to where like it sends you a, a code you have to put in the little code and then it just syncs right up to your account and you just, it literally had playlists on it. Fuck. It had the fucking movies that we picked and everything. And I went, well, but I kinda maybe liked, next year. I kind of liked our like janky way we did it. Cause it, sure. it worked great. We're like, Hey, we're going to make this happen. And, um, but yeah, so I mean, you, you mentioned Coda. That was our first film. Um, it I, was. I came over and, uh, and the most Sundancey of films that we watched it during was the entire fest. The, yeah, there were a couple. Um, that was the most Sundancey though, and I remember that was an experience of because you know Carrie, your girlfriend, was there as well for most of it. I think she came like ten minutes in. Yeah, she um, watched almost all the movie with us, and I. I kind of came with a chip on my shoulder, at least of like, oh, this is like going to be a crowd pleaser, like Little Miss Sunshine. And it is about a quirky family. I mean, which it is. It, yeah. And it's, you know, to give for the audience who hasn't seen it yet, it, you know, you will see it on Apple because it sold for $25 million. The biggest the, payday? Yeah. I was going to, I'm pretty sure it is. It, it broke records. Because the how one much before money. that was Worth of a Nation, the, the Nate Parker yes. film, which was 20 or something, or even 10. I thought that was 18. Yeah. So, but it was, yeah. But it beat it. It beat it significantly. Apple was just putting the dick on the table. They they went for it. And they, they spent a lot for uh, Boy State, I remember, as well, from Sun, mm. from South By. But that was a co-release, right? Because A24 handled theatrical, yes. and then Apple used their platform for it. Yeah, this was a straight-up, like, and, you know, I was also saying, you know, COVID's not, we're not going to be in full theatrical mode for a while now, and we're going to make this our if thing. Ever. If ever, you know. But, you know, I that was a film... And we saw it together where I... We were, uh, it's it's fair to say we both resisted it for the first <laughs> at least 45 minutes. We, you know, we talked shit and then you started laughing like at actual funny parts. And I started like... And then we realized at the end that like your girlfriend, you and me were all fucking crying. Yeah. Like I, I cried like, twice. I was like, movie. what? The? And I was like, but I was like, man, fuck this movie. Because it's like, I'm not, you know, we are not bulletproof. And being, you know, I'm a cynical film lover, but I'm like... 
that film got me, man. Like, I couldn't help for all the making fun of it I did. And to give a quick overview of the family. It's yeah, Coda. I was going to say, we should run down what the movie's actually about. <laughs> but Coda, Coda stands for Child of Deaf uh, Adults. And um, and so the main character is uh, a hearing child, and her, her parents and her brother are all deaf. And our Marley Matlin plays her mother. Yeah. Um, and uh, her father, I, Leo I forget his, the actor's name, but he's fantastic. Best part um, of the movie. Best part of the movie. Because from the beginning, he just owns every scene he's in. And he, and he they're all um, it, it, in real life deaf. Um, and they, yes. And uh, so the basic plot, you know, goes that she um, works on a fishing boat um, in Gloucester, Massachusetts with her brother and her dad. And she is the, as it's required, you need a, basically an interpreter on your boat. Yeah. Um, and for the family, when they're selling the fish, she needs to be there because, you know, a lot of people who work on the docks do not uh, speak ASL and cannot communicate. So she's torn between that and also this love of singing, which is, of course, this like obvious irony of her family can't hear the thing that she's so good at. Yeah, because um, she has, and this is what we should get into when we talk about this is the most Sundancey movie. It, it falls into the uh let's say subcategory that i've given the name sundance core is that <laughs> it it's like the quirky as you put it family drama and everything but it hits all of these kind of formulaic crowd pleasing beats on like an indie budget because she it's two movies yes. almost in one you have all the working class massachusetts fishing boat stuff, which me and you found like fascinating. I was like, Oh shit. And being deaf at the same time. Yeah. And it's like, here's these two worlds that like, we don't actually get to see on screen too often. And this is real interesting. And then the second movie is she's, you know, in love with singing and she gets the tough choir teacher, her Mickey to um, Rocky or like her Mr. Holland. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And that's Eugenio uh, Derbez. Think, who's yeah. the Mexican uh, comedian who's Superstar. been in a bunch of stuff. He's been in like Jack and Jill and um, that uh, one movie, the, the Overboard, terrible, the Overboard yeah, remake with yeah. Anna Ferris. Like he's on his way Had to be up. a Latin lover was his other big one that came over. Yeah, yeah. And he's like a superstar in Mexico and like has crossed over to varying degrees in the United States. But he plays the tough choir teacher who pushes her to, to, because she wants to eventually uh, apply to Berkeley school of music. That's it. Yeah. The, the new England school of music. That's new England. Right? It's in Boston. Yeah. Is it Boston? Okay. So, cause I always mix that and Juilliard up. Um, so he's pushing her and that becomes like the formulaic thing because she has like the love interest. Who's the kid from sing street. Yep. Which was weird. It took me like 20 minutes into the movie to be like, cause sing street's the only thing I know that fucking kid from. As I went, oh shit! It's the kid from Sing Street. He's just grown now. Yeah, it's uh, it's it. I think our, I mean, not to speak for you, but early on we were all like, wow, there's like a lot of movies happening at once because. Yeah. And I think like my one critique, couple critiques are just you know the boyfriend can go like he literally adds nothing to the film. I just don't want to cut the kid from Sing Street. No, and he's great. He's actually great in the movie. His voice is nice, but it's just it's really totally useless because the whole thing is supposed to be two worlds pulling her right it's and it's weird too because his character is positioned as like this bully almost who's in with the yeah. popular mean girls but he's a band like singing choir kid and i'm like eh, these are two worlds that don't normally mix and but high school i guess musical he's with Zac Efron. yeah and it's like he's good looking i guess so sure it sort of works 
And there's a whole side plot with like her 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 brother sleeping with her best friend, which is completely abandoned. Yeah, it's just thrown out the window. And and she spends a lot of time with her best friend at the beginning, and it's just like you know, there's there her are a couple, trashy underage bartender best friend. Yeah, it's it's weird, and and there's some side plots that I think could be excised from the movie, but. I think you're talking about there's there's two worlds at the beginning that feel like they're once kind of shoved they actually, together. Once they actually cross, because the yes. whole movie becomes as formulaic as it sounds, she's forced into making a choice between do I continue on with my, my parents and their burgeoning business? Because there's this whole, again, as you said, there's another subplot to where like the like fishing unions or oh, something man. are trying to put like checkers on the boats and they're charging and, they're and, and the overcharging, guy, they're overcharging. So they're not making enough money. And so the dad wants to almost not, he wants to basically branch off from this kind of established sell his own fish, like community of fishermen. And they start selling their own fish so they, they can actually make money doing it and blah, blah, blah. But again, that's all sort of, it's, more or less glossed over a little bit. It will. And the, the checkers end up obviously being a plot point that pulls at her because she's not there to be the interpreter. The checker does not know that her brother and dad are deaf. Yeah. And that is what, kind which of also didn't make any sense to me is you, you would think of <laughs> like somebody, unless right. they're purposefully and they kind of hint that they might've been purposefully trying to sabotage these people after he revolts against this kind of established yeah. community. But like, the way that actress plays it when she's on the boat is almost like, oh shit, I didn't know they were deaf. And I was like, somebody would have fucking informed you they were deaf. There's a plot, there's a plot hole there. And, um, and it, so they're working that in to be, they set that up. Not to, be to a cinema thing. sins this shit, but no. it, it didn't, it didn't make any sense to me to where I went, oh, okay. But I mean, like what you're getting at too, though, is like, I think for the last like 30, 40 minutes, like those two worlds mesh together very well in concert. And <laughs> so to speak, but there's, I mean, they're, we were all watching it and, one of my favorite moments of watching this film, you know, obviously spoilers ahead, uh, watching this film with with Carrie was she calls out, she said, why didn't she sign for her family during the concert? Yeah. You know, and we're all like, yeah, it's kind of fucked up that she's like doing this big concert and her family's there to, to see her. They can't hear her. And this great moment they cut and to that's inside paid their off heads. Later. And it's paid off later because it's like, oh, that is going to be. Uh, the film answers most of the questions that you have, which is good storytelling, you yeah. know, where you plant the question now of like, why didn't I see that there? Oh, it's going to be, like you said, paid off later. Yeah. And I didn't, Carrie picked up on it and I went, yeah, she's right. But there's one scene in particular, which to me, and I turned to you after it ended, I went, oh yeah, the, that's that the scene, <laughs> that's, that's the whole reason you make this movie is the conflict comes from like, you know, Marley Matlin's like, why would you basically choose to sing? You're doing an art that like you, the rest of your family can't enjoy. Her dad's trying to latch onto it, but is kind of just lost in his own mix of emotions and everything. But like after the concert and they can't hear, there's this awesome moment. And this is the, the one that made me cry is that they're sitting on the back of a truck bed. Her dad is like, sing for me. I just, I want you to sing. I want to try to understand it. And she begins to sing and he reaches up and puts his hands on the sides of her neck so he can feel her vocal cords and experience the vibrations of singing. And it's like, even thinking He's about like it louder, now, louder. like I'm getting like kind of choked up about it because you watch it and the, they play it with almost like an unbroken take. And it's just, um, it's incredible. And you just sit there and you're like, Okay, 
Now, now, now the whole movie makes sense. It, it, that, I, I think you're. I think that's the moment where it all. We're like, that's kind of your your money scene. But then followed up by you know them waking her up and kind of having their little Miss Sunshine moment of like we're running to the pageant, we're running to yeah. the, 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 the you know we're gonna run to the uh, audition, which she was not going to do. And then it's you know the the final one of the penultimate scenes is. You know, her trying out these very douchey um, music teachers from Berkeley to set up to be like, oh, you're late. Oh, you're not ready. All this kind of yeah, like very. It's real stereotypical yeah. shit. Yeah. And they're like, huh? What's this? You know, it's very like the setup in um, uh, like American Idol where like, you know, this person's going to sound well, but they're or like, what's, what's her name? Susan Boyle on Mary's Got Talent or whatever, where it's like, here we go. And they're singing well. It's like, oh, yeah. I'm so surprised kind of thing. But her parents sneak into the um, the second balcony, uh, up the upper balcony, and they're watching. She finally does, you know, we were set up, signing for them. And it's... It's um, another great... It's Joni like, Mitchell's... Really moving moment. Joni Mitchell's I've Looked at Clouds from Both Sides, which is a beautiful, beautiful moving song. Actually, it, I think it, my phone heard us talking about it this week because it's been playing on my on my list, on it, which is, you know, sure. the NSA or, you know, just YouTube listening to what I'm saying. Um, but I love that song and she's doing the motions and they're picking up, but it's also obviously about the song is about learning about life and love yeah. and what life really fucking means. Um, and it, it just, it comes together and I, it's one of those things like we, you turn to me after and say, that's going to sell for a lot of fucking money. <laughs> and, and then like you text me the next day, you're like the bidding war was between Amazon and Apple. Yeah. Prime and Apple. Right. And then it sold to Apple for 25 million. And you're like, yup. And we're like, called <laughs> Called, called it, it, you know, and but I think I think it deserves it. I really, you know, and it took a home. Yeah, if you watch that in a theater, it would kill. It, it just it's, and I wish it would. I, you know, I, I like to shake my head at kind of sentimental family drama comedies, but I'm not gonna lie that again, if it affected all of us, like it actually, it you know, again, I think there is some bumps at the beginning which are real, and I think we were on, I think sure. we were correct about that. But when it comes together at the end, I mean it. It, it lands the last 40 minutes are pretty much impeccable. It really kind of hits them all. Yeah. You can never underestimate the power of a great like musical finish. No, you know, it's uh it's it great. Works. Yeah. Um, Movie number two sensor, which I was really looking forward. We both were we both. Yeah. We were both talking shit about Coda saying, we're not going to like this. Can't wait to watch sensor. And we get to sensor and we were both on the same page. Sensor sucks. And, which is weird because we're in the minority because a lot of people have gone ham for this movie and I it's, not to bring up festival hype, but this feels like the victim of fest hype because like it's not that good. I had an experience, I think we talked about this, you know, what you said the festival hype experience of being at festivals in person, which is, is even more rabid yeah. because I remember getting out of a couple of films, and one of those was Mind's Eye at Fantastic Fest, oh, um, which is, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to the filmmakers, one of the worst films I've ever seen at a festival. Ever. Um, and to, to, for me, I actually wrote a script that was like my version of a Cronenberg thing, and I threw it away after I saw that film. I said, like, you know what? Just don't fucking walk on his lawn. You know, just don't. Yeah. It's, it's, you come across as cheap. But anyway, I don't want to rip on, you know, I get to do a whole episode on that, but it was a similar thing where I got out, and then I was like, I'm going to check my phone at what the reviews are like for this film. And yeah. it was just being loved by the festival crowd. And it was the same thing for Censor. I got home because we, we we finished that. And we're like, wow, that was really terrible. And I went home immediately and was like, because the festival, you know, the reviews were going up quickly on IndieWire. Of course, IndieWire is a hookup with Sunday. They see it yeah. earlier, so they're ready to go. Um, and, oh, it's this film. 
And I want to touch on it's something about trauma. There. That's exactly where I want to go with this. And and there's a theme, obviously, in every every film festival has this, but every fucking horror film now, these like slow burn, shitty horror films that play at festivals are a meditation on trauma. And I think as a theme, it's important to uh, to navigate in film. When but done well, it's good. I mean, it's, Ari Oster's movies are. Pretty damn good. I'm I not the, as much in the Baba Duke. I think is also a, a good Baba Duke. Yep. That you know, and also by a, fil- a female with a female lead and a film- female filmmaker. You know, a lot of times it's about traumas happened to women. Obviously, sure. military. Uh, and this is what censor is too, because it's it's a woman director. It's Prano Bailey Bond, who I believe this is her first yep. feature. She's a short filmmaker. From yeah, before. a Welsh filmmaker. It's um, well put together. It's pretty. You know, it's it's well. Is it? Maybe not. Well, the production design's terrible. Yeah. It. It does a thing. Okay, so to set it up for people at home, it's about a film censor during the 80s, during the video nasty era in Britain, who is just basically taking the hatchet to every violent film that takes in, that you know kind of comes in front of her. Like B and C movies. Yeah, B and C movies. Driller it opens with a montage of shit like Driller Killer, and, uh, Nightmares in the Damaged Brain. And so like, we're in at that point. Yeah, you're like... Which who live by the sea. I don't know if footage from that was in it, but I'm just listing video nasties off the top of my head. So like you get where it's coming from and it becomes about how like she had something horrible happen to her in her past, like to her sister. Her sister disappeared. And she they thinks don't know that happened. like these movies are going to inspire further crimes, which is, you know, it, it does echo like the Mary Whitehouse talking points from the era but the thing that really bothered me about the movie is that there are several films within the film that don't look like films from the video nasty era, which I don't understand if you're going to tackle such a hyper specific period of time right down to the talking points of the people who kind of spearheaded that particular movement. Why not replicate that aesthetic and instead shoot all of the movies within the movie like they look like your movie that's that's just bad filmmaking like i, I don't understand it and now obviously like reality and her dreams and the way that because this becomes like you know video a woman woman and... a, a, on the verge of a nervous breakdown type stuff of like they're, they're penetrating her psyche and she can't tell dreams from reality. And then she embarks to basically find the filmmaker of the one she's working on and gets on his set and blah, blah, blah. Some eight millimeter vibes, but it's going down the road. Yeah. But it, it just, I was watching it just being like, okay, like you can kind of apologize for it, but at the same time it doesn't work. And there are moments where the movie just looks cheap. The, The one you called out was the, the video store. Yeah, there's a video store set that I went. No video store has ever looked like that. It ever. was. It just like it, it looked. Yeah, there's. It was another film. That, I mean, some of the reviews I read, they're like, "Oh, like get ready for the the horror film that's going to terrify you." There's not one scary moment, and it's not me trying to. Be t- I want to be scared when I watch a film. There's not sure. one scary or uncomfortable moment in that entire film. Like no, I I, I don't I, think the, so. The climax with the entire dreamy stuff and to where it goes almost full tilt, blue velvet, Lynchian. Yeah, tries to like tries to like. I kind of admired that, but like for the most part, by like the last thirty minutes, I was so checked out to where I went. Nah, this is this isn't working. 
I, I, yeah, I just, and I was, again, the festival hype, and I had friends on, on social media who were, like, loving on it, and I'm, you know, I'm 50% contrarian inside of me. I like to be the guy who doesn't like what other people like sometimes, but I, without reading that, you and I just didn't have a good time. No. Like, the, and the thing is, the well, movie we it promised, the movie it. it promised is, like, where's that movie? Like, the pitch alone, it kind of writes itself, I feel like, you know, and you don't have to surprise me, but it's just this thing where it... It's um it didn't come together for me whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a bummer. It's um, I wanted to like it. It also does a thing that I don't like in terms of like, and again, it, it kind of falls in line with the whole like, this is a movie about trauma type thing, and like the elevated like post a twenty four like horror picture in that like, it's clearly a horror movie that isn't as interested in being part of the genre or maybe thinks it's above it. I, I, that bums me out. You know, a film that I saw that I thought of while watching it was knife plus heart. And, um, man, and that's a masterpiece. Like, I think that that's film. that's also about trauma, but also about the AIDS scare. And a lot of horror films from that, well, it's also a lesbian love story. Lesbian love story, and it's and it's a it's a giallo, cru- you know? yeah, cruising tinged giallo, like. But it leans in, and I think it's an uncomfortable film. But it also like hits all the themes it's trying to hit. Yeah, it's original. It's well, made. it's beautiful. It establishes <laughs> its own very strange aesthetic. Yeah, and it's like I thought of that. I said, "Man, you're," and again, the video drum connection. I said, "You know, you're kind of again another person kind of dancing on." Cronenberg's lawn a little bit there of like identity and mix of yeah. media, media and um and, and I love films about haunted media or th- media you're not supposed to see I mean I love the Japanese and American ring I love the novels you know yeah. um I love which we'll talk about next season empty man you know about yeah. that media that you're not supposed to mess with um and as we'll get to um we're all going to the world's fair um which is a We'll save it for a couple minutes from now, but uh, yeah, because I didn't see that one. But uh, I mean, I could talk about it now since we're kind of on the subject. Yeah, go into it. Is that cool? So I watched "We're All Going to the World's Fair" by uh, director Jane Schoenbrunn, um, and I and a lot of people are saying it's one of the films of the fest, and I have to agree. Um, and it was it was you know one of the things we talked about with festivals, and I think what you were more stuck to with even this festival is like not reading much about a film before you watched it. Um, my thing was I kind of had limited time and I wanted to make sure that I was going to watch a good one. And there was a, a pretty good slate of films and I was primed to watch something else. And then I was just scanning through, like it was the last, I think last or second night of the fest and people were talking about deep films to watch if you can. And, and that was one that everyone kept talking about. Um, and so I did, and I was utterly blown away, but it's also a film about, about media and kind of reality and, and, what you're seeing on a screen kind of starting to mix. Um, and the main character, I believe, is named Anna. Um, she's a teenage girl. She's like 16 or 17. Um, and it's basically kind of a creepypasta narrative where she is um, takes what's called the World's Fair Challenge, where in almost like a, a, a Bloody Mary or like Candyman type way, like okay. you, you cut your finger and you rub it across the screen of your of your and you tape yourself and you say we are I, I want to go to the world's fair I want to go to the world's fair and I want to go to the world's fair a third time and then things are supposed to start happening you're supposed to have changes to your body and people there are it's like like creepypastas can be you know people are putting their own videos that are probably not real of a guy who with the world's fair idea reaches under his skin of his arm and pulls out a line of tickets like admission Ooh. tickets and it's awesome but the, what's great about the film is it you know it the opposite of censor 
Um, Sensor really promises a horror film, and it is kind of, but it's like above it. And what We're All Going to the World's Fair does, it's like it's not afraid of, of horror roots, but it's trying to do something a lot more. And so it gives you moments of like paranormal activity. Like they even talk about it in the film of, you know, she sets her camera on her, on her um, computer to watch her sleep and then things happen during the night. But it's, it's not a horror film at all when it gets down to it. But by the end of the film, you're so just moved and kind of and fucked in the head by what happens that it's, you know, a film about you don't know at the end. It's the, the terror of, you know, there really is no supernatural element to the film, but it's more about is she going to hurt herself or someone else? Or is this part of a game she's playing? Because she she builds this relationship with an older man um, on like a form. He, he finds her, like watches her videos and says, okay, okay I think you're really special. And you learn he's kind of this like, late forties, early fifties kind of guy, you know, ball has a family, but he's, you know, very creepily has this room where he does this. He's a very soft kind of, um, it's actually the, the, um, the villain from, uh, beyond the black rainbow, but oh, without wow. the wig, he's got a shaved head and he's great in it. And she's, she's the actress who plays Anna is, I think I apply the performance of the fest. I mean, it, she's mind blowing. It's her first, her first film, I think period or her first feature. Um, and it's just about Anna Cobb. Anna Cobb. Um, so, so sorry, that's the actress's name. Yeah, um, and she and is it Casey is the character's name. I don't know. Yes. Yeah, Casey. Um, so she's. It, it's again. It's not a film about that slow descent into madness. It's really like you're kind of on the outside. Like you're only seeing what she's posting. Sometimes it's very selective of what you're seeing. Um, but um, a lot of writers also spoke about it being a trans narrative um, and about your body going through changes and not be, being sure uh, exactly what all that entails and the, the confusion that can maybe go along with that. Um, and that's what I understand that was one of the, the purposes of the film. I can't speak to that myself, um, and I don't, I don't kind of want to. Um, but the, the, you watch the film, and it just feels packed with meaning. <laughs> nice. You know, a film, maybe stuff I'm not picking up on, you know, but just as a, you know, narrative about reality and, and media kind of starting to mix. 78 minutes in and out. Oh, wow. Just, you Big know, selling point big, to me. Well, 78 and, minutes. And perfectly paced and like really creepy, but also like really compassionate to the main character. You feel like from the first scene, like she's doing this thing, but she's got tears in her eyes. Like the first scene is like a, I think it's like a six minute take of her doing this challenge and kind of talking to her 20 person audience on YouTube. And it's really fucking sad. Um, but I think, it, I mean, it was one of my favorite films of the fest and the one that I think really kind of got me. I thought about it for days now which I think is all you can, the yeah. best compliment you can give a film. Yeah, um, especially at a festival where so many of these things go in one ear and out the other. Yeah, yeah, and that was one that just, it, it stuck with me and it is sticking with me still. So, but, uh, I mean, honestly, kudos to the filmmaker. I think this film is going to have a lot of play. I think it's going to do very, very well nice. on, on VOD. I think it's going to have a, a cult following of, like, exactly, because the end is very ambiguous, and the whole film is very ambiguous as to, again, is she playing a game here or is it... Uh, or is it reality? So, yeah. All right. Well, my film that I watched yeah. uh, that you did not was Human Factors. Yeah. Which is a German, very icy clinical family drama about this rich family, this uh, husband and wife who own an advertising firm. And they're entering into a contract with a political campaign who 
they kind of insinuate through like radio broadcasts and stuff, but never directly say like is very right wing, mm-hmm. um, probably reactionary. And the wife has some apprehension about doing it. The husband is basically like doing it to gl- grab the entire spotlight the entire time. And they go on kind of a vacation in their little, uh, very nice modern house in the woods. And there's a home invasion. Now, it's not a home invasion like straw dogs or anything. It's basically just like some people break into their home. You don't ever really see them, but it scares everybody involved. And then we cut to like a Rashomon style uh kind of point of view changing to where like we learn how each person experienced it, how it affected them and how uh, they kind of react with it or to it in the moment. And I, I found it, you know, we keep bringing up Cronenberg, but this movie struck me a lot as like similar to Cronenberg's dramas mm. In that it's very detached. It's very into just kind of observing these people under this dramatic uh, microscope. And it becomes a movie about what you're willing to sacrifice or what you're willing to compromise in order to achieve success and like kind of like pursue different paths and clients and in business and everything and how that has a ripple effect. Um, because they insinuate that like the home invasion may have been politically motivated. There's another attack on like their offices that occurs. And again, all of this, it's never like overly violent. Like the attack on the office is almost like paintballs or something. Mm. And, it, it's real. It was real interesting for me. And it was one that I watched at like 11 o'clock in the morning and just sat there and I was like, okay, this is almost like a fantastic fest movie to where like, I would see it first thing in the day go, Ooh, that's pretty good. And then, you know, tell a couple of people to watch it. And then that's it. It also has an entire sequence that shot. There's a pet rat that goes missing at one point. And we actually get in the kind of Rashomon narrative framing or, or fracturing we get some rat vision to where we get the rats perspective on the break-in which and that comes like towards the end or like the movie's doing it it's thing it's giving you all the human drama whatever and then it cuts to this weird thing to where like the rats in one of those kind of like pet boxes with all the holes poked in mm-hmm. and it gets knocked over when everything's happening and it just kind of like crawls out and is like looking around and i was like what the fuck are we watching this from the rat's perspective now? I did not see this movie because the rest of the movie's not playful at all. Very it's very and- It's very detached. It's very like again observational more than anything. But I like it. I I liked it quite a bit. Um you know, this is the type of thing I gravitate to though uh, particularly during fest is because it's the type of movie you never know if you're ever going to get a chance to see again cuz I don't think it has distribution yet. I mean, honestly, I don't know who it would be for in terms of like an American audience, but I dug it. It's pretty good. I think it might be a good film to do next is so some of the reviews I've read coming out on that film um, and we can comment it on here, but also in the next film we're talking about um, was a 
connection or a, a an homage to Michael Haneke films. And just some of the reasons. Oh, I, Jesus Christ. Right. And I, and I think that that's a thing that, I mean, I think he is one of the best living filmmakers, but I think he's a person that, it's like the way people say Lynchian when something's weird. Yeah. You know, it's like. Well, but, with Haneke, it's almost like, here's the detached observational cold thing. And it's yeah. like, no, like it doesn't. Just because they're doing that doesn't mean it's Haneke like because like he Haneke he doesn't own that. <laughs> yeah, he has a a very distinct style. Yeah, he's got, and I I think that the other film that I think we talk about from that is John in the Hole. Um, and that Awful. was another. What a piece of shit! I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> that was a film that had money, had a cast across the board, had great production design. Had music, had sound design, yeah, Michael C. Hall's in it. Um, uh, Jennifer Te- Ale, Tessa, uh, Tessa Formiga. Formiga. Jennifer Ale's the mom. Um, the the boy who's from uh, Troop Zero, which I do like. Um, okay, and and he and it's you know everyone so quippily saying, "Oh, it's like a dark Home Alone." I'm like, "Yeah, no fucking shit, it's dark Home Alone." Yeah, because like, like to recap it for people, it's about a kid who finds like a, oh, a, a bunker a bunker that was half finished in the woods behind their very like lavish, a fallout shelter kind of thing yeah. like multi-million dollar home in the woods like michael c hall clearly is is very successful doing something yeah um and he decides that he's going to drug his family and put them in the hole without killing them, hurting them without killing them. Cause he gives them supplies to live off of and stuff. Popeye's and sleeping chicken. Bag. Yeah. Popeye's <laughs> like fake ass Popeye's chicken. But like, it's, tr- it's really striving to be like purposefully ambiguous as to why he's doing any of this. It almost to me, the way I interpret it is like, here's the rich privileged white kid who decided he wanted some time to himself to do whatever he wanted. So he got rid of his family in like a way that didn't exactly harm them. And then it's all about like that weird privilege that comes with that to where like, because the movie, not to spoil it for anybody, but I'm gonna, it just ends. Like he lets them out of the hole at the end. And they have dinner for like a four minute And they shot. have dinner for a, a long, the most Haneke esque, shot in the whole movie and then it just ends and I'm like oh so it's about he's a rich white kid who can get away with every once even with his own family I don't care yeah and the the readings I found on online of just other re- I read reviews because I left one of the things after watching things like only me who hates this film and people were like oh it's really you know it's about a kid who's rushing to grow up and realizing that blah blah, blah. it's like you know, I think Mud does that more successfully. Of yeah, because uh, it doesn't blow. Uh, yeah, and fucking Jeff Nichols is awesome. But it's like that that you know story of a kid who's like, I want to be an adult and I want to believe in love, and it's very clear about what, what it's trying to do. I think sure. And this film was like not a also like not a very likable main character in John. Like the kid's good at what he's being asked to do, but it's like really drab and it. Again, like with you know, you think about the ambi- you know ambiguity of a Haneke film like Cachet. You're like, what? Like the end of that film like yeah. punches you. Like I showed it to my friend a couple months ago. He'd never seen it. We watched it online together. He's in Atlanta, and I just like we're we're talking. We have it on the phone, like kind of watching it together. And there's just like silence at the end. I'm like, are you you there? He's like, yeah. I'm just like trying to process this. Like that's a film that does that. Right. Yes. Yeah. This is a film that does that. Yeah. As I like Haneke, and I'm not as talented. Again, like. 
I have all these resources at my disposal too. That's the biggest right. I, well, don't I mean, don't you think again? We're talking about people, and I, maybe we talked about this when we were when we were watching some films during this. But it's a very Sundance thing where first films are very um, they're by people in the system. Well, they're in the system, but also people who are referencing filmmakers hard. Yeah, like this is like I'm doing my Cohen. You see a lot of Cohen films. I feel like yeah. At, you see a lot of Haneke films, you see a lot of Polanski films. Um, you see a lot of, I'm trying to think of other filmmakers that are kind of aped. Um, Del Toro sometimes, I feel like. With Lynch. Lit Lynchian films and um, some, even now Cassavetti's films, you know. Um, Wes Anderson we, definitely, definitely works his way in there. But it's people, it's their first film. But one of the annoying things, like like you mentioned, though, is like a lot of times it's, it's outsiders slash insiders because the, it's like, from director, blah, 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 and then they come up to be interviewed. I'm like, oh, it's that actor. You know, it's these people that, are, like you said, are in the system, so they're like, they've kind of been vetted by the system already. Here's Rebecca Hall's daring directorial debut about race. Yeah, I'm here's like, Iron Man 3's Rebecca Hall. Yeah, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't. I skipped passing entirely because I don't care. No, and I, it's, it's playing into that whole game there, and I think John in the Hole was... I objectively say I will, I will argue with someone who thinks it's good. I don't think there's anything to take from that film. No, I, I think it's empty, and I think it's 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 a poor. There's film. There's some stylish like stuff in it, but who cares? Um, off of that, I just want to speak briefly about a film I saw alone called Knocking. Um, yeah, which I think is an, is a film that because you brought up Polanski. Polanski, I think I might be a good you know segue there. Um, so Swedish no- movie, right? Yeah. So the director's uh, Frida Kempf, I believe, is the filmmaker's name. Um, yes, uh, it's a Swedish film. Uh, a, another shorter movie, I think, under eighty minutes, about a. Uh, a woman named Molly, who you're not really sure what happened, but had a traumatic event at a beach with her lover. It's about trauma. It's about trauma, but it's actually done. It's it's done well, and it also leads you. It's more about mental health, I think, too, and like a person, like a crazy. repulsion. Type yeah, and, and and a lot of people are saying it's very repulsion esque, and it is, but it also has like. Not that they're mutually exclusive, but it has some heavy Hitchcock rear window vibes too. Okay. Um, and it is basically about a woman who is getting out of the psych hospital. It's been months, I believe, since her her event uh, of losing her loved one, and, and she's ready to go out in the world, and she gets a apartment, uh, gets an apartment in a, you know, just like middle-class uh, apartment building, and she's just trying to put her life together, and she's, you know, buying plants and, and just trying to get back to a normal life, and then she starts to hear knocking coming from the ceiling above her, um, and starts to believe that someone is in need of help. Uh, and she, of course she goes upstairs and is speaking to her neighbors and a couple of them, one guy especially is very weird, has a weird kind of like neo-Nazi haircut and he's like older and, and you have the sense of like, oh, that's the kind of guy who would have a fucking, you know, woman in a box or something in his, in his room. And it's very like, it's pretty much confined to the, the, um, to the apartment building. And of course it's again, a, you know, quote unquote, the sentiment of madness, but it's more like, no, you've already been mad. And it's the fear, constant fear of like, am I going back to what I was? Yeah. Am I going to regress? Am I, yeah. Am I going to regress? And it's like a, you know, what it reminded me a lot of was, was the guilty, the Danish film. Oh, well, that's a good movie. Uh, which is, I think a perfect film. Um, I love that movie, but it's very like locked I mean, it, not a quite locked down as guilty where it's a guy in a room on a phone, but it's mostly her and sound, you know, and then, okay. you know, going out and speaking to her neighbors and then being like, she's losing it. She's crazy. Oh, she came out of the psych hospital, but it's actually like the, the main performance is 
is phenomenal. Like, just owns the movie. It's beautifully directed. Again, it's a film that knows what to do with it. If I understand watching the, the – I watched the Q&A after. The filmmaker is saying, like, yeah, we were pretty limited on budget, but they, they sell it. I mean, it's like everything looks great. Good. Um and I thought it was, yeah, that was actually one of my favorite films of the fest as well. That was a, that was the one that was just like thumbs up. Bummed I missed it. I just, yeah. it was just one of those that just didn't work its way in. Yeah. No. And I, it was just one that's like, oh, you know, I'm, I am Swedish American and I, I was like, I like to watch Swedish film and I, so I'll give this a shot. Um, so I'll gloss over one to stay on Sweden real quick. Uh, Most Beautiful Boy in the World, a documentary about uh, Bjorn Anderson, who, is an actor who was a child actor, not really. And it's kind of, it's kind of about how his grandmother kind of pushed him into acting. And he was cast in, uh, Lucino Visconti's, uh, death in Venice and how he became almost like the first kind of not first, but like earliest, uh, teeny bopper, like kind of superstar internationally, and how his image is more or less stolen from him and that kind of haunts him throughout the rest of his life. And it, it intercuts because most of us probably know him now for those who haven't seen death in Venice. He is the elder in midsummer who jumps off the cliff and (laughs) kills himself. Um, But like, that's what most people know him from now. He's an elderly man now, but he lives in squalor, more or less. And it's about how the kind of stark differences between where you are in one point in your life and where you are in the other point and how his image was exploited sometimes without his consent and how that kind of drove his life kind of uh, irreparably. Uh, for years, or the majority of it. And it's very, very sad. Um, This is another one you did not see, and I did. But I remember texting you uh, just because I was like, Martin, most beautiful boy in the world, Swedish as fuck. (laughs) But it's like, I know what that means. Yeah, (laughs) and it was like, uh, it it just is this very deep melancholy and sadness they call it the that, nordic melancholy the nordic melancholy yeah. and then that's that's what this movie is but i mean it's beautifully shot uh it's by a pair of uh, i believe swedish filmmakers uh christian petri and christina lindstrom um really well made great little kind of piece of uh you know kind of film history that's intertwined with this personal story that's tragic um you know see it if you can yeah, well, I, I off of that too. I think something you mentioned when we were watching this, and something I talked to my my friend who's programmed for South by about was just that festivals consciously or subconsciously end up having like a theme that that runs through most of the films. And yeah, well, we kind of were speaking kind of flippantly about trauma. Like it seems like childhood trauma and the way it affects adults is really a big thing this year yeah. at Sundance. And I think one we should talk about that we both saw was on the count of three. Um, oh man, that movie's real good. Which I found, um, actually, I thought it was great. Um, it was Gerard Carmichael's directorial debut, uh, stand-up comedian and actor who wrote. I don't believe he wrote it, but he directed it and starred in it. Um, it was the writers of of Dave from Hulu. If I'm if I'm incorrect. Oh really? Yeah. Um, and it's or Dave or it's 
Mm. Ari Kotcher and Ryan Welch. Yeah, double check on that. No, I'm right. I'm watching it. it. Oh, is it? But that's them. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, Feature but, debut as well. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's it's a very it's a very Sundance film. I think it is a very Sundance film in a lot of ways. But, you know, Christopher Abbott, and we can talk about him in this film. Is um, whenever he's in a film, I'm gonna watch it. Uh, I yeah, he's I, great. I think he's an awesome actor, and he's in. And something you mentioned though is he's definitely his his the thing he has to fight in his career is going to be not being the intense young actor. Yeah. Uh, he, he's doing the thing that Gosling did for like a little while there to where it's like, here's this really good looking guy who like is clearly like trying to be like the next like thing. You he's know, got a little De Niro Brando, in him and yeah. De Niro esque kind of actor takes nothing but these micro budgeted kind of indie dramas. It was in like arguably one of my favorite movies, if not my favorite movie of last year, possessor also top three for where, me where he's great. Um, but yeah, he teetered on almost becoming kind of like self parody at certain points because it seemed like he had no sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, but here, and I saw um, it before you and I told you, I said, it's actually funny. Yeah. And he, yeah. That he's really funny in it. And you're right. Like he, he's hilarious in it. It reminds me a lot of when Ryan to bring up Ryan Gosling again is when the movie that kind of always, or performance that kind of always sold me on Gosling more than any other is, um, the nice guys. Yeah. When Gosling is just, he gets to do like Laurel Hart and Hardy shit. And like, He's hilarious while also being sad and like acting his ass off the entire time and bouncing off of Russell Crowe. Yeah, keeping up with Russell Crowe. Like just totally eats that chain black dialogue up the entire time. Like, I mean, for my money, Nice Guys is like one of the best movies of the last like 20 years. I had heartburn when but, I saw it in the theater. So it kind of, I had eaten a lot of popcorn and red wine. Hmm, and it'll and, do it. And, and also prime rib for dinner before. Jesus. So like, I need to watch it again. I liked the film, but I was like literally sick to my stomach. I watched it like 30 <laughs> times. It's, it's one of the ones that I just throw on when I don't yeah. have anything else I can watch. And I'm like, it's great. Like it might be my favorite chain black movie. Yeah. I'm, I don't sure. I'm not sure what mine is. Um, but anyway, Definitely on the count of three. Yeah. On the, <laughs> um, yeah. On the count of three, uh, you know, b- basically about two best friends, one friend also getting out of a psych hospital after a suicide, suicide attempt. Um, and his best friend who basically helps him break out, actually helps him get out early, um, saying, you tried to kill yourself. You really want to kill yourself. His friend says, yes. He says, well, I want to kill myself too. I just quit my job. I broke up with my, my girlfriend. I'm done. And it's just two friends who decide like, okay, we'll kill each other, but they decide we'll have one good day. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it, there's a preciousness at moments of like, Oh, it's the last day. What would you do? And so they kind of are doing a, a walk down memory lane of the things they've done together as children. And, but then it gets dark, but then it gets dark. And there's again, a, you know, childhood trauma thing where, you know, Christopher Abbott's character believes that all his troubles really stem from being sexually molested by his therapist played by Henry, Henry Winkler. Winkler. And, and Which the, was the one point that I I struggled with taking seriously. It doesn't. It's one of those things you could tell they're trying to cast against tight. But like, there's a flashback of him with like they'd done a little bit of like d- digital de aging and makeup with a really horrible like like brunette wig. It's like one and, of the worst Arrested Development jokes you could think of, to where they're like, "Yeah, this doesn't work." It takes you out of the movie a little bit at that. But I think that like there's a great line in the film which I you know, really connected with is, you know, Gerard Carmichael's character says, and he just told, he just told his friend that he quit his job, but also talking about suicide. It's like, there's no, there's no better feeling than quitting something you hate. 
Yeah. You know, just saying, fuck it, you know, because it's like, and he's obviously talking about his job, but also suicide of like, if you're just done with something, it's kind of a freeing, you know, freeing uh, feeling to it. But also it, it has a, you know, like a lot of Sundance quote unquote dramedies, you know, it has a really good dark sense of humor that just like. And a very dark ending. Dark, like oh, a dark dramatic ending. Yeah. That's not humor, humorous at all, but also is of the character, what they do. I think is is, oh, sure. is is exactly where it's leading. Totally works. You yeah. Know? Um, but I was I was moved by the film, and I you know it's not perfect. It's got some bumps, and it's got some indieisms. Yeah, no, I think to it's it. rough around the edges. Yeah, and it's definitely a directorial debut. But I I thought that you know uh, a pretty tight script, and again like they and you know not to sp- I mean, Gerard too as the main character is great. You know, I think he he's really dry. Like he plays it super super subdued. Yeah. You know, like he has a more like. It seems more like Christopher Abbott's character is like on the anxiety spectrum and he's the depressive spectrum. Well, it's you know? it, to me, the one thing that I really liked uh, that it explored and it does it in an entertaining fashion is that it's the difference between being in a funk and actually being mentally ill. That's exactly, yep. you know, that's what I was reading about too, is it's a really good way to like kind of look at, well, yeah. Are you having a bad month? You know, yeah, you're having or, a bad day. Are you like, do you need help? You need medication. You should be hospitalized. And that's Christopher Abbott's character and his friend. It's more like, no, you just, you're having a rough time. Yeah. You're feeling stuck. And, um, cause like Tiffany, Tiffany Haddish shows up as, uh, Gerard Carmichael's girlfriend and just basically screams that out at one point. It's like, you need to get your fucking shit together. Like, yeah, just go talk to somebody. Leave me alone. Yeah. It's, um, but I, I thought it was one of the better films of the fest too. You know, it was, uh, you know, there were quite a few that I was like, eh, and this was definitely not one of them. Um, uh, speaking of movies that are like, eh, but also deal with like kind of childhood friends and everything. Um, I'll just touch on real quick one for the road. It's a Thai movie by a filmmaker named Baz, uh, If I'm saying that correct. Uh, it, he made a movie. I saw a fantastic fest a couple of years ago called bad genius, which was like a blockbuster in China, I believe. But this movie is about a young Thai kid who now lives in New York, is like a bougie bartender, owns his own bar, playboy type who sleeps with every like pretty woman he comes into contact with. And he gets contacted by uh, an old friend who's been diagnosed with cancer. He flies back to Thailand and they go on a road trip and basically cycle through so that uh, his best friend who's dying can go say goodbye to a bunch of exes of his and just kind of almost atone for his past sins and, and wrongdoings in these relationships. It almost plays like a cancel, uh, cancer-riddled uh, high fidelity in a, a few ways. But um, this movie's not great, but it looks great. I really wish uh, Baz uh, Poonperia would be given kind of a studio budget because this almost looks like a cross between like a Tony Scott movie if it were produced by Wong Kar Wai, which I mean, Wong Kar Wai did produce this movie. So it checks out. There's even like a John Woo homage in like yes. the best scene of the entire movie to where like, you know, the, the guy goes, his, his one girlfriend or ex-girlfriend wanted to be an actress at a certain point And he goes back and basically, they're watching her on set and she, she's trying to get this scene right. And the director just keeps berating her. It's like, I'm, you're not bringing the energy I want. Like, this is ridiculous. 
and they break and he goes and kind of has his moment with her where he apologizes and she like freaks out and uh, slaps him, loses her shit and then goes back and just nails the scene. But then the scene ends with her pulling two pistols and blowing the dude what? away while like doves float out behind. I was like, oh, it's a John Woo joke. Um, can we like get this guy? Cause it looks amazing while he's doing, he does the slow-mo and everything. And I was just saying there, like, can we get this dude like a studio budget? Cause I'll watch him shoot like a Hollywood action picture tomorrow. If you give him the money to do it. But that's one for a road real quick. Not a great movie. Great looking movie. Not don't regret seeing it, but like don't have a whole lot to write home about with it. I'll go off of that for another film I saw alone that you didn't see called Wild Indian. Um, but you really like that one. I loved it. Um, but again, about uh, there's this is also about some serious childhood trauma, but it's a, made by a filmmaker named Lyle uh, Mitchell Corbine Jr., um, Native American filmmaker from, uh, I believe grew up in Northern Wisconsin, the Bad River Reservation. Okay. Um, and I'm from, we have family in Wisconsin, have a cabin there, and um, Better is actually not too far from where we spent our summers. And he... It's his it's his directorial debut. He's done some short films, and I believe he also wrote it with the Sundance Labs. So you could tell, oh, wow. watching the script, you can tell it's been workshopped, which is a good thing. It, it feels very, you know, it's probably like 30 drafts of sure. this thing. It's very honed down. Um, but the basic plot is, um, it starts in the 80s, um, and it's about uh, two boys, Makwa um, and Teto, and they're cousins slash best friends. Um, growing up um, on the reservation, going to school, uh, and Makwa, the, the main character, um, abused by his very young father. It's like, I think he had him when he was 18. Um, abused, going to school with just like huge welts on his face. Um, the kid who plays him is amazing. Um, just full of pain. And, but he's uh, being beat up at school too. He's just basically getting the, the short end of the stick everywhere he goes. Um, and his, you know, best friend and slash cousin, Teto, they're out in the woods playing one day, which is like, they're kind of where they go to kind of get away. Um, and Teto, you know, leaves to go home and they've been playing with, uh, Teto's father's gun, uh, Winchester. Um, and, um, as Teto leaves in through the, uh, woods walks a kid from school that, uh, Mako is very jealous of. He's kind of a popular native American kid who's kind of crossed over and made friends with, uh, uh, kids who are off the reservation and he, and he just kind of shoots at him and kills him. Um, this is early oh. in the film. And, and Teto hears it and comes over and sees the body and they bury it together. And that's the, that's the impetus for the entire movie. Um, and then it shoots forward and it's uh, present day and Michael Gray eyes uh, actor from true detective season three. Oh, um, okay. He's the lead. Um, and uh, he has now changed his name, moved to California. He's married to Kate Bosworth and upgrade upgrade and lives in a you know beautiful home with a uh, a native american like but hipster painting on the wall that's like the only place left for his this hip- is very this sounds very similar to one for the road in terms of like it's there's elements of like a guy who moved out of his own country and left his entire like kind of culture behind to embrace yep. something else in terms of su- like how success defined him. Yeah. Well, and the, and the, one of the producers is uh, Jesse Eisenberg 
And yeah, so I saw that. Jesse Eisenberg has a small role, but Jesse Eisenberg represents just like white businessmen in this film. That's what he is. Because you don't even really meet the other people. Makes who, sense. But Jesse Eisenberg comes in and they're talking and he's like, yeah, bro. Like, oh man, you're definitely gonna get that promotion, bro. And it's Michael Gray eyes like playing it cool, like being kind of awkward. And then they have a whole conversation about, should I cut off my braid? And it's this awkward, amazingly written conversation of like, Jesse Eisenberg doesn't sure what to say. He's like, yeah, I mean, how long are they supposed to be? And it's just this really like great kind of comedy of, you know, uncomfortableness of manners. Like, I don't know what to say to not be offensive here. But um, basically, Teddo, the idea is that at the the core of what they did in the woods that day, you know, Michael Graz, who was the one who did, you know, the killing, Makua, goes off and kind of lives this life, but he's still trying to push down his heritage. And Teddo became a thief and went into jail and has a tattoo, a bear claw tattoo in his face and then Ojibwe across his neck. So he can't get a regular job out of, you know, he, he took that and it broke him and he became a criminal. And now he comes out and he goes and he confesses to the mother of the kid they killed, it was killed and says, Hey, I did it. I owe you everything. Also, Makwa did it and I'm going to go find him. And it's them coming together. He goes up to California and it's this whole idea about about trauma, like generational trauma being passed down. But again, a film that does it well and writes, you know, versus saying, oh, it's still about trauma. You know, it's like, no, it's, sure. it's, it's done. It's, it's woven into the narrative. And the idea is that it, the, the, the caps of the film the, is the opening scene is in the 1800s and a Native American who's been infected with smallpox just all over his face. And it's, and it's like, there, there once was a man, like a kind of scroll across the screen. It was, like, it was a Native American who went west. And it's him like trying to go west, but he's sick. And then, of course, is like very obviously tied to you know uh, Makwa going west. And it's the serious man prologue. Exactly, it very much. It's this, it's this past thing, and it kind of has a, there's a, a bookend of him after being free of you know being blamed for this murder, and he's on the he's on the water looking out at the, the ocean of L.A. And it's cutting from that to him as that Native American in these past scenes and being sick and like. There's a scene, too, where he's speaking. Um, he was attacked by Teddo, and he survived it, and he was uh, shot on the arm. And he covers it up. And so for the scenes after, it's kind of like in the bedroom with the finger for um, the father. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's like he's, he's touching, he's touching it. And then finally, you know, he sees his wife after all this, and he's like, she's like, she's, he's like do you want to see it? And she, like, kind of looks at the wound. And it's obvious, it's very, you know, obvious metaphor for, like, the wound of his past and the wound of his, of his generation, his, his genealogy. And she says, that's terrible. And then he just goes into her arms and starts bawling. And it's like a really powerful moment. And so some of the reviews have been like, oh, it doesn't quite get to where it's going. I completely disagree. It's it's definitely a first, it's a, it's a freshman feature. Sure. But it feels like this guy put this through draft upon draft upon draft. And it's also coming from a real place of like growing up and... Um, the actor who plays Ted, I'm, I'm forgetting his name right now, is actually in the uh, Twilight series. He's one of the werewolves. He actually is the best actor in the movie. There's a scene where he's, again, confessing his, his that he did this murder to the mother, and he just breaks down crying. He's, like, shaking his hands and just, like, owning it, just, like, really going for it. And I was just, I mean, again, an hour-and-a-half movie, just a tight thriller about, you know, the, you know again, like in the Stephen King way, like, it, like, the sins of your past or the things you did as children are coming back to haunt you. Um, so yeah, big fan of wild Indian. Well, speaking of child murder, um, one of the bigger, at least to me, from my perspective, I could be wrong. Um, critical hits of the fest was a movie that you and I struggled with when we watched it together. And that is mass. Uh, (laughs) 
Dude, it's being called one of the best films of the fest. Everyone's like losing it for it. I saw somebody being like, this is a best picture contender, no doubt. And I was like, did we watch the same movie? Fran Kranz, who for most of us, he's always going to be the stoner from Cabin in the Woods, uh, but it's his directorial debut. He wrote it too. He wrote it as well. Um, and it's a locked room confessional drama. It literally takes place almost entirely in a church basement where Jason Isaacs and Dowd, uh, Martha Plimpton and Reed Bernie play parents of a school shooting massacre on one side, you know, you had the parents of somebody who was killed and on the other side, you have the parents of the shooter and it's them just working their shit out for two hours, two excruciating hours. And here's the thing. It was a week ago. It was last Saturday. We watched it. You were yeah. There. Yeah, exactly. A we week like, ago Whoa. today. And <laughs> there's stuff about it that I like. And I get like the acting's great, particularly like Jason Isaacs is amazing in yeah. this movie. He's really, really good, but it's so rough and it totally does not pass the should have this just been a play litmus test. <laughs> no. Yeah, like, because absolutely. it's, it's also like you set it in a church basement and it is a church basement. It's like a little office, cream colored, cream colored walls, a, a literal fold out table with these janky chairs. And they just hash it out between the four of them during this. And like, I get there's part of me that like understands it on one level is that I wondered if it was so beige that it's not supposed to distract you because yeah. There's an entire intro where, like, the person who's essentially organizing this, I don't even know what the fuck her role is. I think, she, I think they're she's almost like she's a trauma like, counselor yeah. or lawyer or something. But she comes in and she's walking through with the church staff and being like, this is a distraction. Uh, why is this here? Will Heart, there, hearts on the window. And- yeah, will there be uh, people here or whatever? And they have to, like, rearrange the schedule of, like, the choir or who's going to rehearse and stuff. And like, there's part of me that wonders it because like looking back at it after we watched it, I went, Oh, that character's like our entry point and is supposed to be like clearing the path for this emotional catharsis to occur. Like they, they, there isn't supposed to be any distractions. It's not supposed to be quote unquote cinematic at the same time. This is still cinema and I want it to be cinematic and watching these people yell at each other in a church basement as good as like it's there are scenes that are very well I don't even know if we can call them scenes because like the majority of the movie is one scene a scene yeah and like there's emotional beats obviously but it is very much like watching a play like if this you even said like when we were watching it if this were a play it would be like here's the table here's some chairs here's maybe black a box li- we talked about. it would be black box like like theater shit and then the, the the thing that did keep distracting us is that there's this weird <laughs> intro stuff to where like the one uh like the, the one of the, the kids who's like a volunteer at the church or something like goes out and or like she goes out like the, the head of the church goes out and buys like a bunch of snacks and lays it out and the 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 woman who's organizing it walks in and is like, We should put these snacks away. Like that's not that that's not what this is here for. And like we kept making jokes to each other to where like wouldn't it be funny in the middle of like Jason Isaacs's big like emotional monologue who he just broke and went, Do we have any chips? <laughs> 
no, you we guys kept... want to take a break and like maybe have a root beer? Yeah, it was just like back there. We're like, because the snacks think, are there. I think we were both hungry too. <laughs> That's part of it. So are you guys gonna eat those snacks? You guys or... want to? You guys want to eat these these snacks? Or like, do you, is there any like? Do you think they brought like guacamole here? <laughs> well, and I think I brought it up. when We talked about it. But I remember like back in college and my one of first film classes, my professor. Uh, Dave Busan showing us uh, my dinner with Andre, and I and I yeah. was, and he was like saying like, "Hey, you think it's easy to shoot like in one location? This is how hard it is." And here's the look at all the different shots he's doing here. Like he talked us through like it's easier on a production schedule of like you can have one spot because it's so hard to tell a story with movement yeah. in one room. He goes, "This is how hard it is," and we're like, "So watching this, this is a person who doesn't know how to do that." You know, it's a lot of shot, reverse shot. It's like back yeah, to Yeah, we're wide. not all Louis Mal. Yeah, right. You don't know how to like, it's, it's, you're, you're really shooting yourself in the foot to do that with your first film. Besides, obviously, it's easier on a financial basis. Maybe not. Maybe we're the outliers because people seem to really dig it. But I also wonder if it's, again, one of those fest yep. bias things to where it's like, this is supposed to be raw and powerful and tackling these issues. And I was just like, but it doesn't. But there's also like obvious, like, structural issues with it too. This movie's two hours long. It all takes place in a church basement. It takes you 20 minutes yep. to get into the fucking church. Then when you're in the basement, it takes another almost 25 for like the thesis statement. Cause they keep kind of dancing around why these people are there until about 45 minutes in. And then they really hash it out. And I was sitting there like, if I was a producer giving notes on this movie, I'd be like, yo, we got to get in the church quicker and be cut 20 minutes like because both. this is too yeah. much no because we were we were both saying it's like the all the like people talking on the issue like even before they get there to the church of like the people working at the church and the grief counselor being like you're saying oh this could be distracting and it's like i don't care like this is not interesting <laughs> it's like it's visually not interesting to me because you're like you're i get what they're trying to use to build up suspense and build up what is the story here and it's like you know I, I get kind of building, you know, making us wait, but it's like there's not a lot to keep us entertained sure. until that happens. You know, like you need to like give us a little sugar <laughs> to like get us through that first 45 minutes of fuck, you know. And again, the performances are good, but I didn't, it didn't fucking work for me. It just seems like it's straining for profundity the entire time, and I don't care. It's also a topic movie. You know, it's yeah. about gun. Like it's a, it's gun very control. much a message slash issues movie. Ugh. And again, like you got to do it real well to keep me like kind of involved in that anymore. Yeah. Um, but off of that, I think one that did work for us about child murder was mother schmuckers. Uh, no, we're not going to, we watched, we're not going to say a whole lot. We watched mother schmuckers. It's a Danish comedy. It's about two idiots in Belgian comedy. Is it Belgian? Yeah. Who cares? Yeah, it fucking sucks. Don't ever watch it. It's terrible. Try to be Greasy Strangler. It's garbage. Yeah. Next. Um, was Coming Home in the Dark. Ooh, child murder. Yeah. A lot of child murder lot, this year. Child trauma. Dance. So if you didn't die as a child, you're fucked up as an adult. Yep. Or you were killed as a, or you were abused as a child, or you killed as a child and you never got to grow up. So um, it's fucked up. But Coming Home in the Dark was awesome. Yep. Um, I loved it. It had a top three of the fest. I, I would say for me, it has a wolf. You know, obviously it's, it's a New Zealand film, so it has a you know, obviously Wolf Creek is Australian, but it has that like outback feel, exploitation, uh, exploitation. Um, 
taking the wrong turn, meeting, the, you know, almost it has a good man is hard to find Flaney O'Connor story going on of running into the misfit on a, on a, and then having your sins kind of drawn out in front of you, yeah. you know? Um, but it was, I thought it was put together well, obviously the, the, you know, we were both thinking at the beginning, Oh, there's probably more because this at the beginning, it's just straight up. Like you just took a wrong turn. Like you're, you're, you're yeah. picnicking on by the wrong lake. Right. Um, and then things go awry. really awry. A lot of people die. A lot of people. Pretty much everyone. Um, it's really great. I don't want to spoil anything yeah. out of this movie because there's also some kind of national issues that it uses to uh, kind of represent through these characters kind of trauma and like horrible things that they did in their past and this is a movie that I really hope finds distribution because it's impeccably crafted. It's a genre movie that is the antithesis of what we were talking about with something like Censor to where like it's about something. It's trying to be about something, but at the same time, it's still like, I'm going to give you a brutal genre movie. Yeah, it gives and you what it's you came for. fucking savage at certain points. Love it. Coming Home in the Dark. Yeah, top three easy. Yeah, it was one of my faves. Um I like to also talk about a film we both did watch, which was Eight Eight for Silver. Yeah, Eight from Silver, Eight for Silver, Eight for Silver, Eight for Silver. Um, modern Hammer movie. It is a modern Hammer movie um, from the filmmaker who did Anthropoid, um, which I've never I've never seen any of his other movies. I haven't either. Kyle, uh, let me look it up real quick. Sean Ellis. Sean Ellis. Um, we we're but, so close, but yeah. not at all. <laughs> but it was um, very. Okay, Boyd, you know, Boyd Holbrook in it and um, Kelly Riley, uh, quite a few other, like, actually Boyd, Boyd Holbrook's American, I believe, but... I think so, yeah. yeah he's doing a British accent, but it it's actually an unofficial sequel, in my mind, to Brotherhood of the Wolf, because they talk about the wolf of Givardin, and that the wolf that did... Um, sorry, the wolf or the... Yeah. The beast, The basically. beast, The beast of Givardin that attacked um, the French countryside and was turned into Brotherhood of the Wolf, a... I love the movie, martial arts, uh, colonial <laughs> era. Epic with Mark Dacascos and... Yeah, as Mani is... Uh, Monica Bellucci. Mm. Christopher Gans just direct... I mean, Monica Bellucci, I think, never looking more beautiful than that movie. Right. Um, when they do... <laughs> When they do a transition from her breast to the mountains, to the mountains, uh, uh, just chef's all timer shit, <laughs> just the best. But they, um, it was funny. I was watching. Oh, this is like an unofficial sequel. Is it's about a guy who was part of that fighting that wolf coming now to the uh, British countryside. Sure. Yeah, I think it's, it's British. Um, and he comes there, and they're they've been cursed uh, by a wolf, and it, it brings in a lot of like the Wolfman uh, ethos from like Bill Lugosi, or sorry. Uh, Lon Chaney Jr.'s Wolfman with Bella Lugosi with with the, uh, with it's, the a, gypsies. it's a gypsy curse like yeah, they a little thinner in there. It's doing a little bit of like white colonialism too, to where like they wipe these the this band of gypsies out to get them off their land and claim it. The old gypsy woman like puts a curse on them, and then all of a sudden this beast comes out and just starts fucking everything up. And dude, this movie is gnarly. Yeah, like it's there gory. is great gore in it. It's really fucking gross. But like, if I had a complaint about it, like it looks great. All that misty, foggy, dewy, more like photography is amazing. Holding a fucking torch and looking oh, out. With yeah, the, the fog. torches in the darkness. Like again, this is a modern Hammer movie. The CGI for the Beast, Ooh. little janky. 
But like, again, don't care because like there's a massacre that occurs at the end. That's fucking awesome. In the church. Yeah. Yeah. But like, this is just a, this is a, a, a very much a rarity at any festival in that even in the genre festivals that we go to, like Fantastic Fest is that this is almost like a straight up unpretentious homage to like classic horror that doesn't really pretend it's about a whole lot. Like you could pick the white colonialism stuff out if you wanted to, but like you just pointed, like that's all in like th- those movies from the, the hammer and even back to like universal yep. horror and stuff. Like this is just like, we're going to make a monster movie. It's going to be gross. There's going to be monsters. Kids are going to die. Boyd Holbrook basically plays Johnny Depp from Sleepy Hollow. Like, and yes, it's it's almost like a more serious version of Burton's Sleepy Hollow, which for me is a good I thing because I like that movie a lot. <laughs> Might be the last Tim Burton movie I actually liked, but highest recommendation like this, like Eight for Silver, a whole bunch. Yeah, I I, I texted my brother after because we both and my other friend who like loves werewolf movies, and I and I, you know. I remember seeing a blurb for it, I think, on the Sundance website. It's like a new take on the werewolf curse. And it did. It That's actually, what it is. Yeah. yeah. And it really, like, it has a different mythology. And I don't want to give too much. There's some Swamp Thing elements to it. Ooh, I didn't <laughs> think about that until you just said that. Yeah. Because yeah, I was like, oh, that's some Swamp Thing shit. There's some vines and other things. This movie it. didn't do well critically, though. Like, I saw a lot of people just kind of shrug it off. And I was like, fuck you. Do you not like fun? Like, what? I like watching kids get their arms ripped off by werewolves. That's Dude, pretty cool. It's brutal. Like, yeah. And honestly, it's a movie I'll probably end up owning. Like, I'll, I'll pop oh, 100% it in. Because it even on silent, it's gorgeous. Like, yeah. it's, and like, the score is amazing. Great, great score. Like, well directed. Again, like, again, Kelly Riley's hot. I think she's just one of the most beautiful men on the planet. Do you watch so, Yellowstone? No, but I saw that shot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. yeah. There's some great side um, boobage. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, she she's great in it and yeah it was also it felt like the most unsundance movie i saw yeah it's just like we had a genre movie here it is with a budget too yeah it looks great it looks, looks like a 50 million dollar movie or i don't fucking know like it looks expensive uh and to jump off real quick to talk about movies that don't feel like sundance movies and were quite popular i watched this you did not uh i did want to talk about the sparks brothers mm. edgar wright's uh documentary about Sparks, the band, the most British band that ever came from America. Uh, it's about, if you if you don't know anything about them, it's Ron and Russell Mayle. Uh, they've been, you know, a band that's morphed through many incarnations in terms of sound since the late 60s, early 70s. Um, this is a lot of fun. It's a very breezy music doc for running 135 fucking minutes. Uh, but it's... It's good. It's it's Edgar Wright basically making a movie about I unabashedly love a thing that you should love. Here's me evangelizing about it for two and almost two and a half hours. And I do have critiques with it other than it being nine years long. Um, there's no real drama to the spark story. Like the most drama that you get out of these brothers is that, oh man, people didn't really get it when we put it out. And then you cue like some famous person like Patton Oswalt or the human league or like the, the new order, like all of these incredibly famous people being like just talking for 20 minutes. Like, well, let me tell you why that album that was misunderstood was one of the biggest influences on my life. And I'm like, well, this kind of of undercuts any kind of drama that's in it. 
but you don't care because it has all of the Edgar Wright kind of staples of like there's animation, there's crazy transitions, there's black and white, like starkly shot interviews. Edgar Wright interviews himself at one point and he gives himself the, the little uh, cry on of fanboy, not director, not anything, <laughs> just sparks fanboy. And it's like, it's totally him just having fun and, and creating like this space that you can hang out in while he evangelizes. He and many people evangelize about this, this band that he loves. And I don't know, there's something kind of wonderful about it. I can't believe it doesn't have distribution yet just because Wright's name is attached to it. And it's, it's obviously like a labor of love. Um, but yeah, the, the Sparks brothers fun. You'll see it probably eventually. Do you want to also talk about Summer of Soul? Is that sticking in the music? Um, yeah. Oh, but where I was going with that, with the whole, this is the anti Sundance kind oh, of movie, yeah, yeah. is the Sparks Brothers and, yes, yeah, Summer of Soul, which was uh, Questlove's directorial debut. Both feel like movies that probably should have been at South by. Just That's what with it the, sounds the like. Music we, element. Yeah, we, we're all about music stuff here. Yeah. Like. And, like, the Sparks Brothers, particularly because it's very hipster ish, like, here's this. Uh, hip director with Edgar Wright who had, you know, baby driver premiere at South by, um, play. And then quest love you know, having his directorial debut. Now here's the thing, summer of soul or the revolution could not be televised is the very long title to this movie. This might be the most powerful movie that I saw at the entirety of this Sundance. Um, it's about the 1969, uh, Harlem cultural festival which was this giant music festival that was put on in the middle of Harlem during the, uh, the height of the civil rights movement to where they had, you know, Stevie wonder and, um, Sly and the family stone and, uh, Nina Simone, BB King, like all of these like black art, although Sly and the family stone is, is a mixed race band. And they very heavily comment on like all of these black, because they interview a bunch of people who were there and were like, we were shocked to see that Sly and the family stone had white people. In it. And we're like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> but like, um, it's all of these black artists predominantly presenting their music to a black audience that, you know, at the time that was a rarity, especially a black audience that large with like hundreds of thousands of people. But this to me is, uh, two things. It's a great fucking concert, uh, film because this is all footage that Questlove essentially unearthed because it was never televised. It was never put on video because as they claim in the movie, although I've read in a couple of reviews that this is slightly distorted factually, is that Woodstock and the film Woodstock uh, kind of stole the thunder. I, I read about uh, from that this. Too. Now, there is some timing issues. I know that some people have pointed out and being like, eh, you might be stretching the truth a little bit here. But this is the first time ever that all of this footage has kind of been presented in one place, and it's fucking phenomenal. It reminds me a lot of uh, the Sidney Pollock doc that came out. Uh, what's her? Uh, the Amazing Grace. Hmm that Neon put out, it was, which was a concert film with, um, oh, I'm blanking on the singer who it's all about. Uh, I'm looking it up right now because I feel like a dumb dumb. Aretha Franklin, dear. Mm. But oh, it's right, all, of, yeah. it's the Aretha Franklin like concert movie that's shot in a church that uh, Sidney Pollock did. 
Uh, this feels a lot like that. It's very much about black people reclaiming their art for their people. And in that way, it's not just a great concert movie, but it's a great cultural document as well. Here's this thing that you never heard about that existed and was obviously a huge part of these people's lives. And like, it's really moving because they find like Questlove finds people who were at it, who start breaking down, rewatching the footage and talking about it and just being like, this was the first time that I realized that like black people could perform for black people and what that meant to black people. And that's pretty fucking amazing. Like it's a really, really great movie. I believe Hulu bought it. I just got to sell for sure. Yeah, no, no, somebody already bought it. I believe it's Hulu. I'd have to look it up, but it was another one of the big sales here. It was the opening night one after Coda that I didn't watch until because it ran, it won the grand jury prize. Mm. So I watched it on the the last day of via the app, <laughs> um, you know, but it's, it's tremendous. And also I want the soundtrack on vinyl because the performances are fucking killer. Like it's just so good. But uh, speaking of, you know, kind of black cultural documents, the other one that we watched, which will be out, I think the week that this episode airs is Judas and the black Messiah, Mm -hmm. which I don't want to go over it too heavily just because it is a big studio movie. It's going to be on HBO max because it was a a Warner brothers production that, you know, got moved during that whole kind of shift with wonder woman and Dune and all that to where it's, it's a day and date release on HBO max. But this movie is awesome. Um, It's very much a big budget black exploitation type film elevated black exploitation let's say uh from shaka king making his directorial debut uh featuring daniel uh, kaluuya as uh, fred hampton and it deals with the assassination of fred hampton and uh, lakeith stanfield who plays um ron o'neill i believe is his name who infiltrates uh, the Black Panther movement and for the FBI, right? yeah, for the FBI, and it results in the assassination of uh, Fred Hampton. And man, it's the closest thing that we'll ever get to a big budget studio version of the Spook Who Sat by the Door, which is one of the greatest black films ever made. Uh, again, don't want to go too deep into it because everybody's going to see it very soon, and we should probably spend more time on the small indie movies. But like. See this movie when it, if you have HBO Max, uh, if you're able to see it any other way, just seek it out. It's it's fucking phenomenal. It's all shot by Steve McQueen's regular cinematographer, uh, Sean Bobbitt. Um, just it's tremendous. Yeah, you just you just see the the dollar amount in the movie too, like this the what they were able to shoot, you know, with in terms of production design and everything. It's it's epic, truly epic. Um, and Lakeith Stanfield, I mean, I love Daniel Kaluuya a lot, but I think Lucky Stanfield is one of those guys that I want to have even a bigger career than he's having now. Sure, like, it's just like you kind of I mean, he's me, great in everything. He kind of reminds me of Sam Rockwell, who just do these like kind of like supporting roles for a long time before given like a lead lead. And like he's had leads, but not like in a big big movie. Well, and, like his work in Atlanta, he's amazing. Is amazing. He's so I think he steals that show. Yeah, um, he's the best part of the show. Absolutely, and that show all around is tremendous. But like. Every time he's in a scene, I'm like, oh, my God. Like, his line delivery in it is amazing. The Alligator Man oh, uh, yeah. episode where he's just, like, hanging out in the room. He's like, prison vibes. I got to get out of here. <laughs> just, well, he, he plays the kind of, like, what would be on another another script, the classic stoner person. Sure. Th- but brings this, like, 
real depth and like and like layered yeah. like layered performance to that where you're like this guy's this guy's actually got something to say like you know he'll have these like moments of like wisdom that pop through you're like oh fuck um yeah it's i hate the this character and i hate kevin smith to my core but he almost has a silent bob yep. quality to where it's like the guy who when he just does will talk. drop that profundity and you're like where the fuck did that come from but uh, moving on to a movie that neither one of us... Well, actually, I really liked and you did not like. We did not watch together. Sion Sono and Nick Cage's Prisoners of the Ghostland. Martin, would you like to go first? Because you hated it. Yeah, I really hated this movie. Um, and it's it's funny because I, I was watching and I said, Jacob's either really going to like this or he's really going to hate it like me. There's no middle ground here. I, didn't, I knew that. When I was waiting for you to text after yeah. you had seen it. I saw the premiere, and you watched it on one of the second screenings. Um, I was... I, I Honestly, it's like I haven't seen a lot of Cian Sono's films. I don't have a relationship with him as a filmmaker. I'm not his biggest fan. Like he He's big with a bunch of my friends who are into extreme uh, Asian filmmaking, and I've never been able to dig into a bunch of it. I like... Um, why don't you play Su- in hell? I saw Suicide Club, I think. Suicide Club, I like, but I, I like, I've struggled to ever finish Love Exposure, um, Tokyo Tribe. I'm like, uh, like the rap in Tokyo Tribe is so bad that I don't care. Like, it looks great and there's great set pieces in it, but I'm also like, the rap sucks. So, yeah, I'm not really sure what to. So, you know, the the basic film is people say it's like, you know. Samurai film meets Mad Max. Um, there's one other, and and they'll skate from New York because it's very much has a uh, a Snake Plissken kind of mission where go get my daughter or yeah. and and but takes it to a whole new level with you know Snake Plissken has uh, microscopic explosives in his bloodstream and Nick Cage uh, has them strapped to his balls. He has explosives on his arms, which won't rip his arms off; they just hurt. Um, and it's also like they detect if he's going to violently hit like a woman or something. So he. He has a that has part a, I was unclear on. He has a neck. He's a neck piece. This is if he doesn't get there in time, will kill him. He'll rip his yeah. His that's very out. snake plisskiny. Very yeah. Or and also battle royale, like the kind of yeah with the thing in there. And then um, yeah, he's got, he's got two on his balls that just look like balls on the outside. They're these kind of glowing orbs that start, start to turn red. If it, that's if he gets aroused and he's going to sexually do something, I think because he gets aroused because of it's Sophie Batella and how can you not? Um, yeah. And, and she's so hot and she's just really, yeah, she's gorgeous in this, but the basic idea is he has to go get her from uh, the ghost land, this uh, wasteland outside of the small pocket of civilization called uh, samurai town. Yeah. It reminds me. I mean, my big thing with this is that this feels like, an artier version of Albert Pune's movies to You're where right. Ghostland is kind of like Edge City in Radioactive Dreams. Which I've like, not seen yet, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very much taking place in that same kind of headspace of like the post-apocalyptic pop cinema. I mean, because this movie barely has a narrative. It's like you have to go, like he has to go rescue the daughter. Now, you haven't touched on my favorite part of the movie, which is Bill Mosley, who the, plays the, the governor. governor. And he's just doing total Texas shit kicker weirdo stuff like in the middle of this post-apocalyptic like Albert Pune movie. But I mean, this is all the stuff that I liked because I liked that it was an entire movie that's made up of idiosyncrasy to a certain degree while also not being as cranked up. I mean, because like you read Sion Sono and Nick Cage and it's like, 
oh, this is going to be the craziest fucking movie of all time. And frankly, like for both of them, it's kind of toned down. Like Cage gets to do some Cage-isms. Like he screams testicle at one point. High fucking, high fucking yaw. Yeah, the high fucking yaw stuff. And then like there's a bank robbery set piece where he screams like a whole bunch. With Nick Cassavetes. Yeah, (laughs) Nick Cassavetes is looking bad. He's looking rough. rough. (laughs) My man has seen better days. They didn't, as he said in Face Off, no more drugs for that man. <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, it, it, that's it though. Like in terms of narrative, like it's it's all this weird, like almost spiritual redemption tale to where like Nick Cage is trying to redeem himself for something that his partner essentially did like during the time, which again doesn't one hundred percent make sense. Um, and kind of come to terms with it, his own place in the universe and. I mean, I think for me, when you take into account that Sion Sono had like a life-threatening heart attack in the yeah. middle of production. Supposed to make it in the States. Yeah, and, and also making it... Well, no, they shot it in Japan. They were supposed to make it in the States, and then yeah. just the heart attack, they, it was Nick Cage that they did, why don't we just do it in Japan then? Yeah. And they did it there instead. Yeah, and they shot it in Japan. It's his first English language movie, but it very much feels like a guy trying to come to terms with maybe his past sins while being on deathbed. Again, metatextual stuff shouldn't, and doesn't usually improve the movie itself, but I did take that into account while watching it. But I, I just had fun with this. Like, it felt loose. It, I liked all the weird production design. I liked all the idiosyncrasy about it. And I just, it felt fun, but you... I think you're either on board or you're not with this movie. Yeah, you just, you, know? you found all the things that I liked abrasive. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I think we talked about before, even with like our Deal Breaker episodes, of there are certain things that just come down to taste, and not good or bad taste, but like, what do you like? Right. You know, and things that make you happy and things that make me gag can sometimes be like the same thing, right? Where it, and, and vice versa. Sure. You know, films that I love, you're like, like for me, I love like, you know, Final Exam and Boogans because like, Final Exam is a boring ass film. Yes. For a lot of people, but for me, like, I just find a different way in and I love the movie and I watch it over and over again. Yes. And it's like, we'll never meet in the, we'll never meet in the middle on that. Um, no. And I, <laughs> you're also talking kind of out of term because you've referenced like three things that haven't aired yet. But so oh. guess what? Guess what, viewers or listeners? <laughs> Martin just dropped like three spoilers of stuff that's coming up, so uh, Shit. we'll get up on that ass soon. Fuck. Well, <laughs> time is so weird. I was like, damn, it was like one, two, <laughs> three. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. We they, can all do you want to rewind or no? Yeah, you're good. <laughs> okay. Like, there's a hint of things to come. No, but I, I just think that there's a very much. Um, this is one of those films where. I don't think I can argue with you about like why it's quote unquote a bad, and I don't think it's a bad film. It's like, I just didn't like it. Like I was bored out of my mind and I wanted it to be over. I was about 10 minutes in. I'm like, Nope, I'm out. I also, I didn't like the styling of it. And I like Albert Pion fine, but there's sometimes even for that where I feel just, I'm not into it. It also had the boringness of like cyborg to me. If you're talking about Albert Pion. Okay. Um, I can feel that, that kind of feel. Um, I mean the same narrative looseness, that's for sure. Yeah. And like a lackadaisical pacing. Yeah. You know, like lackadaisical pacing or it's like, all right. Um, and let's do uh, real quick. Another movie that uh, we saw separately disagreed on and saw separately that I really like that you did not. And that's jockey. Yeah. Which do you want to set this up or me? Um, I can set up if you want. Yeah. Um, so jockey's, uh, Clifton Collins Jr. having a, as every interviewer says or every review, a rare leading man performance because he has kind of been 
from bit to character actor to supporting actor for 30 some years. Um, I've always liked him a lot. I think he's the best part of this movie. Um, I think Moises Arias as well. Um, and Molly Parker, like the three main characters are really good. It's all shot at a real racetrack. So it has a very immersive feel to it. Yeah. And like you mentioned in a text to me, like the whole thing shot at magic hour, like the whole movie is either at dawn or dusk. Yeah. It looks like a Malick movie. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very Malick. And even some of the handheld stuff he does like later Malick, you know, um, well, to me, this feels very much like Aronofsky. Like, this is the wrestler because it's about yes. an aging athlete in a, this niche sport that's very kind of on his last days and is, he's feeling his body disintegrate, um, dealing with a, a strange kind of relationship story and then possibly a lost child. Like, it hits a lot of the same beats the as, same. The, as the wrestler. Um, you can't, yeah, you keep racing, you're going to die. Yeah. You know, and it's, yeah, exactly. Like he even breaks down at one point in, in front of the, the woman that he, uh, possibly is in love with. And like, it's doing a thing. And I think it's either, are you in, like you said, with prisoners of the ghost land, are you into this thing or you're not? And I was intensely into this movie. Like I loved it. Do you, you know why I think I didn't like it too? Because um, again, I think the I think, no full frontal nudity. Yeah, no, I have more dong for Clifton Collins Jr. That's fair. Like I was promised that, and I, he didn't. Deliver. I was promised dong. I was promised dong, and I, I did not see the dong. But he he's great. I mean, like he he brings it. He's amazing. He's just like in a lot of moments where he's just not even speaking. It's just this like really intense performance. My problem with is I actually read it in a review after I felt the same way. Was I've already seen the writer. And Chloe, yeah, the writer. It's <sighs> it's really if you like if you melded the writer and the wrestler together because it does the same docudrama stuff to where they're using real jockeys and interviewing them about their lives. Yeah, and stuff. And, and this also like is, but this obviously had more. It was going for more of a Hollywoody feel. I think more more a bit, in, yeah more more than the than the than writer because writer yeah. is all non actors. Yeah, certainly. Um, and the writer, you know, writer is like my favorite film. One of my favorite films of the last five years. I I think Chloe Zhao is is it. Um, I mean, you've watched Nomadland now? Yes. And I, it's great. She's a amazing, yeah, it's, it's she, terrific. She's an amazing filmmaker. And what I like, this is more Nomadland than Ryder. Like if, if you were to yeah. compare Jockey, because this, more actors this has more and, actors in it, but like the Nomadland is doing something very similar to where like that almost becomes a documentary at certain points down, right down to the talking heads of like these homeless folks. And real like people. They, yeah. They're dealing with their plight and everything, but that's yeah. a, for a whole other episode. Yeah. And I, but I think that was my main problem is I, I'd already seen, I already seen the writer and it, it just got, it hit all the beats for me of, you know, the writer's obviously about this, you know, a guy, a younger, much younger, Cody, who realizes that he um, can't ride anymore. He's a Bronco buster. Yeah. And he realizes that he, he splits his skull. And it's the classic, like, like wrestler of like, if you do this one more time, you're going to die. It's yeah. That, you know, and it's, they do it in jockey, too, as you mentioned before. Yeah. It's like, like, there's literally that breakdown scene to where, like, his body just dies on one half. Like, he like can't a stroke feel almost. It. Yeah. Yeah. And he just goes, yeah, this happens sometimes. It'll come back. You know, it'll come back. You know, you're like this is fucked up. Yeah, and it's and it's you know you see the brutality, or and it's what they do in the wrestler too, where you like really get these like close shots of like you know the guy with the colostomy bag, or like the yeah, or the pee bag, and then other people with like just what he does to his joints. You just see the the pain yeah. of the masochistic mentality of to be like this, and I think that was I think honestly that was probably the reason I didn't like it. If I had not seen the writer, I probably would have liked this a lot more. You know, I, I think it was just like I, this. I already seen a film that hit the beats for me. 
I don't, I didn't dislike the film. It's just like, I like, I like Clifton. I like the performances, but it's like, I'll never watch it again. There's just not much more there okay. for me. Yeah. Uh, are there, have we hit them all? I think that's in it. In terms of, I have five that I saw that you did not, because I saw, I ended up seeing 21 movies total. I think I was at 15. Okay. So I got five. Yeah. Um, I saw one before the fest, right after TIFF, that I wanted to include called Violation. It was another one of the Midnighters. This is very much a play on the rape revenge uh, film. It it deals with date rape and kind of the the psychic trauma that it leaves on uh, the victim and how she kind of comes back and orchestrates. Not even quite revenge, but like a reckoning, let's call it. Um, this doesn't have distribution yet. It's a very good movie. It's a very uncomfortable movie, uh, which there are two of in Sundance this year that are very confrontational. And we kind of talked about before we started recording, there's a class of movies. Sometimes you see at film festivals and in indie theaters and stuff. You go like, who is this for? (laughs) Or like, was the audience like even considered in the making of it? And violation was one. The other was pleasure, which is a, uh, pseudo documentary. It's a narrative movie, but it's about a Swedish immigrant who wants to break in a, a young blonde, very beautiful woman who wants to break into the modern kind of internet porn industry. And it's done in docudrama style. Again, a lot like jockey or the rider or anything, because a lot of the porn stars, almost all of the porn stars that she encounters and like crew members and stuff, they're, they're real porn people. And it's about her navigating this kind of system as an outsider, immerses you in this world, and it tackles misogyny and the way that the male uh, psyche and like needs and, and the worst parts of, of the, the their kind of fantasies and desires dominate that business now, right down to like the rape porn and very violent kind of aggressive sex stuff, which is included in the movie and a few of the uncomfortable, most uncomfortable scenes. This is the most uncomfortable movie. I think I'll watch all year. I still liked it. Like this is probably top five for me in terms of movies I watched, but also I don't know if I'll ever watch it again because it ended and I was like, all right, there we go. Like I had a friend done. I had a friend who compared it to Larry Clark, but for me, it was much closer to late era Abel Ferrara, uh, particularly the movie he made with Gerard Depardieu called uh, Welcome to New York, which tackles a lot of the same uh, kind of male misogyny and, and power dynamics and stuff. But this movie shoots it literally all through this woman's uh, point of view, right down to like blowjob scenes and rape, like simulated rape scenes and stuff to where you're watching it from her point of view. And it's, it's not fun. I'll tell you that much. Not fun to sit through, Jesus. Uh, but it's real fucking good. Um, and ends on a note that is like, it takes a little too much of a moral stance for me, but like her, let's say the moment that ha- makes her have the epiphany is like, who? Okay which again involves almost her raping somebody and it's gross. Um, too much rape. Thank you. Uh, prime time, a, I believe German drama about a young kid, uh, taking a network TV station hostage while they're on the air to get what seems like a, uh, a gay and lesbian, kind of power message out there, but then basically gets his platform and realizes he doesn't know what the message is. 
kind of a jumbled mess of a movie, really well made. I uh, don't know if it'll ever get distribution. It's one of those uh, quintessential fest movies where I go, well, I've seen it. <laughs> it's a movie. It's a movie that I have now ingested. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, Misha and the Wolves, a movie that I have a few friends who like a whole lot, uh, was acquired by Netflix for a whole lot of money, is really good, will fit really well into their, let's say, brand, growing brand and very successful brand, frankly, of true crime unpleasantness uh, to where it's about a woman who claims to be a Holocaust survivor who may not be telling the truth and how that's investigated by various people because she becomes like a best-selling author and stuff. And then it's debunked, let's say. And it's, it's very good. It becomes a, an interesting mystery that takes a lot of different twists and turns. And you watch it from once I found out that Netflix bought it, it, I went, Oh yeah. Like Coda, you know, where we stopped and went, Oh, this is going to sell for a lot of money. <laughs> like when I watched it, I already knew that Netflix had purchased it before, but if I had watched it before that, I would have been like, man, this would have played really well on Netflix next to like, you know, making a murderer. And uh, what's the new one? The, the, Oh, the night stalker, the one. night stalker one. Like it just, it's right. And that's, there's no serial killers or anything, but it, it plays in that same, like, here's a mystery that's mm. real that unfolds before you and you as the viewer kind of have to make up your own mind about it. Oh, not really in this case. Like she's a fucking liar, but um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty good. You know, 90 minutes in and out again, Boom. another movie I saw. And finally, the one that I am going to end on for this episode is Ben Wheatley's new one. Um, in the woods. In the earth. In the earth, I'm sorry. In the woods. Into I, the woods with into Meryl Streep. Into the woods, yes. His version of Into the Woods with Meryl Streep. Uh, the musical numbers were a lot more psychedelic. But no, this is very much Ben Wheatley's return to form, uh, kind of harkening back to the Kill List days, you know, which he'd gotten away from. He made Rebecca for Netflix, which was, you know, borderline unwatchable. Maybe I'm very rough. hit and miss on Wheatley as a whole. I love High Rise. I love... Um, Kill list. I, I hate, really like I hate sites. Field in England. Yeah, field in England, and there's a there is some field of England in this because there's some real psychedelic weird stuff. But this is the movie that he shot uh, kind of in secret uh, during lockdown for COVID. This is very much a COVID movie. It almost feels borderline like it could be like the 25th hour of the way the 25th hour was to 911. Mm. Like this would be like COVID. Like it it addresses it, but never directly. Let's say. Um, although it was interesting to watch a movie while we're still in the pandemic and lockdown and everything to watch a movie with people in masks and dealing with quarantine and sanitation, like walking into rooms and pumping a little bit of hand sanitizer out. Like it gets into that granular detail of living in the pandemic, but then it becomes like almost another one of his pastoral horror movies. I don't want to give too much away because I believe I know neon's putting it out. And I, I've heard that it might be coming out in like a month or two. Uh, I don't know that for sure. But you will definitely get to see this uh, very soon. It's very good. If you're a fan of Wheatley, this is going to be right up your fucking alley because it's brutal. It's weird. Uh, it's psychedelic. Um, and it ends on a note that is completely ambiguous, like he likes to do. Yep. Um, but that's it for Sundance 2021 virtual edition. Yeah, it was awesome, though. I had a really great time. I did, too. Hopefully, we can do South by Southwest if they announce more than five movies, which is what I checked right now. They have a lineup of five, which I'm not paying 
250 bucks or whatever it is. Yeah, like they haven't... It's like five weeks away. Yeah, they, they haven't fucking... Um, they haven't announced anything else, so it makes me wonder if they just don't have the bandwidth to take on any more content. Um, but we will be drink, bringing you kind of more festival coverage as these things unspool, so stay tuned. But thank you for tuning in to this very special bonus edition of Secret Handshake Sundance. Bye. Bye.